welcome to this month's GPS Training Podcast. It's our 27th episode. In this month's podcast, we chat with Alex from the AA team, Ian from GPS Training, and this is myself, John, who is also from GPS Training. So, without further ado, let's get on with today's podcast. In today's podcast, we chat with Alex from the AA team. You may, may remember Alex from our 25th episode, just before Alex and two of his friends, Seb and Elliot, set off a 10,000 mile journey through 20 countries in a 600 pound Ford Fiesta. And wow, what an adventure they had. I actually recorded the interview via Skype and a few times it just dropped in and out. But I've listened to the interview and I've left its entirety because I think it really just caps the atmosphere on what was a truly epic and exciting journey. After that, we chat with Ian from GPS Training about some of the stranger things people who've been using their GPS units for, both people who've been on the courses or people who've dealt with outside the courses. And then finally, we have Ian's FAQs, the frequently asked questions that we've been asked on both our GPS training courses and some of the support questions we've been doing over the past past month. We're going to have a chat with some Garmin unit FAQs, Garmin watch FAQs, and of course, some sat FAQs. First thing on this month's GPS Training Podcast is we've got Alex back again from the AA team. You may remember we had Alex on our 25th podcast uh, just before Alex and two of his friends, Seven Elliot, were going to head out and motor 10,000 miles through 20 countries, including Europe and Central Asia. They were finishing in Russia, but not only were they doing that epic journey, they were doing it in a 600-pound Ford Fiesta. So the, uh, he's back again. Um, so we're going to catch up and see exactly how he's gone on. So, Alex, you got back in one piece then, didn't you? Hi there, John. Uh, just about. We uh, we had a mishap that did bring us back um, a week early. Well, everyone's back and in one piece, thankfully. Oh, we'll wait for that mishap. I don't know this because like, this is we're not first time we're caught up is when we're recording <laughs> it. So I'm going to wait till the end to get to the mishap because that sounds really exciting. That will keep people <laughs> dangling and listening to what we did. So just to recap, if people hadn't heard the earlier podcasts, back in July you set off um, from the Czech Republic, wasn't it? And you're heading over to Russia. Mm-hmm. There's ten thousand pound in this. Ford Fiesta that was, I think it was a friend's of a friend, wasn't that was cost, well, valued at six hundred pound. Yeah, all right. Um, so how it starts off great. Quick question is, how did you feel being crammed in that Ford Fiesta for three, well, for weeks with three of you? <laughs> it was um, it was very cramped, and we thought we thought at first the front was going to be the worst seat. Um, no, the best seat, sorry. But it turns out the front was the worst seat in the passenger side because uh, in the back, obviously, it was so cramped that it meant you could rest your head really easily and sleep up on things. Right. So it actually turned out more comfy in the back than it was in the front. <laughs> so you were fighting over the back seat than the front seat then? Yeah, un- unexpectedly. <laughs> and then you were taking you were taking turns in the driving, weren't you? So you were trying to drive as much, then you were going to try to do a bit of sightseeing in the evening and then stay, stay camping or in hotels, weren't you? Yeah, so the first, we set off on the Friday night. By the time we'd packed the car and everything, it was... Um, on 10 11 o'clock and then we drove straight to dover um basically without stopping and i think we got the ferry at half past five 
and then just carried on through. And I think we eventually stopped and stopped just rotating drivers. Um, I think it was about 30-odd hours after we'd set off uh, when we stopped in Germany for the night. Um, so, yeah, we managed quite thin for the first few days uh, of rotating drivers. Brilliant. How, how did the car hold up then? Um. We initially, so I say initially, because um, I know what's going to come in the end. So initially, it held up all right, did it? Yeah, we coming through Europe. The the major problem we had was a, a small fuel leak, um, which wasn't like it wasn't too bad. It was a small kind of pinprick that would the fuel tank was definitely damp, and you could definitely smell it. Which we um, we found out about at night when we first pulled up uh, to camp. And that was a funny story in itself. I ended up, while the two of them were under the car trying to fix it, because uh, we didn't have any putty or any... Um, supposedly, you can rub a bar of soap into it, okay. and that'll help um, plug the leak. But I ended up wandering around this small uh, German town, at, I don't know, gone 11 o'clock at night, trying to find a bar of soap, trying to explain in takeaways and things, and if they had a bar of soap. And we eventually managed to plug it up until uh, well, it lasted for a couple of days with some chewing gum and tech uh, until we found a arch properly. Brilliant. So that was the first bit of a dilemma, really. And then you headed on your yeah. way. And, and yeah, how, how did it go then? Initially, was it going great? And, and were you making good time? Or were you doing as you thought you were going to do with the layout of your trip? Yeah, we were we were making good time, really. We um, Initially, we were hoping to be out of Europe in kind of five days to a week, which I think we we hit Turkey in just about six days, I think, so we're pretty much bang on. Um, and then we got into Istanbul and then again ran into some, tr- into some troubles there. Um, we were looking to kind of make the car more off-road worthy, I suppose. It was a lot of, well, what a lot of teams did. They kind of practiced make it more worthy as the car went on. And we thought, yeah, let's we can upgrade the suspension, we'll add a couple of new things, we'll make sure the roof rack is properly welded to the roof of the car for when we go off road and it starts bouncing around. And uh we knew well we thought that, that maybe the wheel bearing uh in the rear was a, a little bit noisy and we thought, oh let's just preemptively change it. We know it's probably gonna go at some point. Let's do it while we're here. We ended up having some dodgy mechanics um, make a bit of a hash of it. And then, uh, yeah, so the wheels started sticking, which I think we got stuck in Istanbul for four or five days, I think, off the back of that. Right. So what was it? Uh, The wheel was sticking, was it, then you said, was it? Yeah, so we kind of, we spent the day around this humongous scrapyard, which had everything you could ever imagine in it. and took all our off-roading parts, and then there was another compound a couple of miles away with more garages than you'll ever see in your life. So we picked one, we thought, oh, they've offered a decent price, didn't seem all right. Um, everyone was really, really friendly. And yeah, they, it turns out they hammered the brake drum and kind of the bearing wasn't seating right in the drum. And it wasn't the problem of the bearing, it was the drum itself. So I think three wheels later, we realised that was the problem uh, and a good few days. 
Oh well, we we live and learn, do we? I must say this point actually. Yeah. I say this, the our logo on the side of the car looked epic. So cheers for that. It was very much appreciated. <laughs> we put it in our newsletter when I saw some of your pictures on your Facebook page, and I thought that oh, looks really good. Have bright orange logo on it. So <laughs> uh, people don't realise we we loan these guys a in reach mini. We'll talk about it a bit later on, and they kindly put their logo mm-hmm. our logo on the car. So that's it. So after you got over the wheel bearing issue, that really wasn't a wheel bearing issue, and uh, yeah, you yeah. you kind of. We were going properly off road, weren't you then? I think. Um, yeah, we we uh, well, I should say, I suppose a couple of days before that, um, we went through Romania and did the uh, from an old Top Gear episode when they did the best road in the world or whatever. Um, and we went up and down there, and then on the kind of far side over this mountain, um, we saw loads of wild bears and all sorts, and that was amazing. And then that was our first proper off-roading, I guess. We um, we went into an unused road that was an old logging road um, down by the side of a lake and then camped there for the night. And that was, I suppose, while in Istanbul, we went to go and look to raise the car um, because it was quite low, especially at night. You can't see exactly how... Um, yeah, that so you, was the first you, So you you wanted to raise the car, you were you were able to or unable to? Uh, we weren't even able to after all that. Mm-hmm. Went to those mechanics was to have it raised and so I suppose they couldn't change a wheel bearing properly so they had no chance of raising the car. <laughs> so was it because you were on these logging tracks, was it catching on the ground, was it a bit the car? Yeah, I mean thankfully we've we put quite a heavy duty sump guard on ourselves before we left. So that had a few grazes and things but yeah it, it was all good we um we just kind of it was a nice intro to the off-roading shall we say fantastic good stuff so at this stage how much were you camping in and i suppose you're out out of the way hotels by then where you were camping most nights were you um it was 50 50 really we um there's a fair few nights we'd pull up at the side of the road and some nights we just slept in the car we were too tired to be bothered to put the tents up other nights we put tents up other nights we had some hammocks and we'd try and find some trees and the further we got the harder that got trying to find things to sling a hammock to but um and then yeah there was the fair few nights we'd find some hostels um which uh, yeah there was still a fair few in the towns and things you know quite nice cheap hotels which i mean when it came to sleeping at the side of the road or you know less than a fiver for a hotel the hotel seemed the better option, didn't it? So how many vehicles started off, at Alex, all together at the start? Do you know the exact figure of people starting? I think it was 250-odd right. off the top of my head. Um, on the start line, there was, uh, there was quite a few, because that's where obviously everyone comes together, and it's the one point that everyone on the rally is in the same place at the same time. Um, yeah, so I think it was 200-odd. Uh, it was quite, quite busy. And did you see many of these people... Once you got going, or not really? Yeah, it was remarkable. Actually, you'd you'd drive for two or three days and not see anyone, and then I don't know. There was like one night in northern Turkey, for example. We were sat at the side of the road uh, having some food, and then we saw two teams in the space of five minutes that right. came past, and then the same guys that we bumped into there, we bumped into two or three times along the way, and it was kind of you would get to know certain teams quite well because you keep leapfrogging and then the further we got and the more kind of 
dangerous that it got. We'd start to stick together and there's kind of safety in numbers. You just drive with them for the day and then the next day you might decide you're going somewhere else and you find a different team that was going that way. Brilliant. So, yeah, I suppose. And you say it's got more dangerous. So as you felt you got further on, did you feel a little bit more yeah, well, exposed to the surroundings around you? Yeah, it was um, just the further we got, the less people spoke English, the further it was in between settlements and kind of finding garages and water and food and that kind of stuff. And then the road got worse and worse um, to the point where things were getting wrong and then it was much easier if you had another couple of cars that could tow each other or, I don't know, lift your car if you have to and just, yeah just do various things with it. It's kind of the safety in numbers, doesn't it? It is there. And you're still sharing the driving at this point where you're still taking turns in the driving? Yeah, that was that was all fine. We're just I didn't do any yesterday, so I do a bit today, yeah. And I think you you wouldn't do more than three, four hours in a go probably. Brilliant. So what happened in the end then? Oh, am I jumping too far ahead? What happened uh, right at yeah. the end? Have I, missed, so, have I missed a big chunk out or not? Or after after we got through Turkey and then we went up into Georgia and Azerbaijan, and we had um, another nightmare in Azerbaijan. Really, we decided we were going to get the ferry across the Caspian Sea over to Turkmenistan, um, and that took in total, I think it was just over six days to get to do the hundred and odd miles from Azerbaijan to Turkmenistan on a ferry. Because it took, I think it was four days to actually get on a ferry, and then another two days once we were on the ferry. It was, I've never been somewhere so unorganised. You'd ask, you'd first get there, you'd ask for the ticket office, and they'd say, oh, no, da, da, da. And then it turned out, oh, but for the company you need, that's the other ticket office, which is the other side of the compound, and no one will tell you anything. And no one knows when the boats are coming and going. There's no schedule. And yeah, it, it was an experience. That. The, um, when we first got on the boat, they, I was on the deck and they asked me to help unmoor it. Right. But oh, I didn't realise we were the part of the crew. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, yeah. So it was, it, was a, it was a two day journey once crazy. you got sailing, then, was it? Yeah. So I think it, to actually cross is 17 or 18 hours. Right. And then, um, yeah, we just kind of dropped the anchor on the outskirts of uh, Turkmenbashi. And, yeah, the, the port was full, apparently. So it's, uh, it's not very well scheduled, so there's a lot of waiting around involved. And was there many other cars on that boat that you were on or not, or was it just yourself? Yeah, so by the time, because there was a sandstorm before we set off, which we lost the day to as well, Um so we ended up basically camping in the car park on the Azerbaijani side of the port. Um, and we, when, when a boat had just left when we got there. And then night by night, there was more and more teams turning up. So we spent the first night with some Ukrainian truckers. And then the second night was the sandstorm. So we were inside in a little waiting area with some locals. And then the third and fourth night, there was more and more rallies turning up. Right. So I think when there was eventually enough of us, we were like, right, let's just try and Mm-hmm. Get you on the boat, get you away. Yeah. It's quite helpful. Fantastic. So you got you got off the boat and everything was going swimmingly good, was it at that point? So not always you slipping behind. Yeah, very thankful to be off the boat. We were a, a 
by that point a few days behind, but we were still quite optimistic. We then um, got into Turkmenistan, which is one of the weirder countries I think I'll ever go to. It's a bit North Korea-esque, um, it's a proper, proper dictatorship. Uh, it's called nine hours from getting off the boat to leaving the ferry port to go through all customs and have all the searches and you have to pay for this document and that document and you have to have your car uh, cleaned and blah, 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 blah. So it took forever. And then that was where I suppose the GPS came into proper use because there's no phone service. You can't get on where you can find internet, which is very rare. Um, there's no Facebook, there's no WhatsApp, everything's banned. So we were expecting to still have phone service. And then at that point, thankfully, we managed to use the messenger on the uh, GPS to just send send the message back and say, look, we're going to be here for a few days. We've not completely disappeared off the face of the earth. Um, so, yeah, it, it was all going quite similarly. Um, and then it was all going to, <laughs> it was all going very quite swimming, swimmingly then. Uh, so we we got most of the way through Turkmenistan, and we went to um, we were spending the night in a place called the Gates of Hell, which is basically it was quite apt really. It's a burning gas crater, um, which is probably a hundred meters in circumference. Right. Um, and by that point, again, there was quite a few teams there that night. Everyone had kind of made their way there. We were going to all meet up and make a big deal of it. And we were sat around cooking with, I think there's about 10, 15 other people. We put a few of our little camping tables together. Everyone was cooking. And then um, one of the team next was their gas cooker just exploded. Um, and that kind of, there was a massive fireball. Um, I think it, people that saw it said it was like a seven foot by seven foot flame, basically. Mm-hmm. Um blew us all off our chair um, and then after the kind of the dust settled everybody was fine apart from Elliot and Seb who both had quite bad burns oh no because uh, they'd been at the end of the table where it come out of the sides of the gas cooker and I was sat in between them and I was perfectly fine um, but they got it quite bad so at that point thankfully um, there was a paramedic with us uh, who she was dead helpful she just jumped straight to it knew exactly what to do um, and then poured everyone's drinking water all over them, which then was great for the next day. I mean, as useful as it was, we then all ran out of water for the next day, which is another problem to solve. But that was at, at that point we tried to solve that. Um, and then, yeah, we kind of... I think, as well, really make massive, massive impact. And then we had a, a really stocked-up first aid kit because uh, Elliot's girlfriend and his mum are both nurses. Mm-hmm. So they knew exactly what we needed and sent us with everything. And uh, we had all the right bandages and everything that we needed. So we managed to wrap them up. And they had to make the decision the next day, uh, do we go back south to the capital and risk having visa issues, which we would have had. And then what we knew we could get back there fairly certainly. Uh, or do we try and go north to Uzbekistan the other teams that were leaving in the morning um, and then try and find somewhere over the border. We decided we'd try and go north um, and again there's safety in numbers because we're still going to have to drive out of the country at some point. Um, uh, we went up the worst road in my life 
it took I think it was thirty kilometers and it took took about six hours. Um, it, yeah, it, someone said it looked like it'd been mortared for five years or something. <laughs> it was at one point tarmac, but it was easier to drive next to it where you could and dirt and the rest of it was far easier actual road but then luckily just had canals by the side so you just had to try and hope for the best uh that afternoon the roof rack fell off as well which is great that went over the bonnet oh, no. um it just shook the car to pieces that road it broke a fair few teams cars um but after i think because we had to stay at the border that night as well so i think it was about 36 hours later i managed to get into uzbekistan and then we got the phone service back and all the rest of it. And we were like, right. I mean, they were both like hurting, but they were, they were all right. Um, it was just kind of working out what we were going to do next and where we should send them, basically. So then in Uzbekistan, we did a tour of the pharmacies because uh, Elliot spoke to his mum. He said, right, you need this cream, that cream, and these bandages and blah, blah, blah. Um, so there was all these fantastic pharmacies stocked full of stuff but none of it was useful mm-hmm. um so we ended up we found a really helpful guy who i think he must have been about 18 was apparently in charge of one of the pharmacies um and he spoke english and then he took us to a few of the bigger pharmacies and tried to help us then ultimately said right you need to go to the hospital which we're a bit wary of because it says on the home office don't go to the hospital <laughs> unless it's like life-threatening <laughs> um so we're like, right, well, we need to we need to try and find some stuff. Hopefully they'll just have a look. They'll tell you what you need, give you the cream, and we'll be on the way. So we went into the hospital, went into the ward, and then they took seven Elliot off, put them in rooms. Um, I was waiting outside, and then I heard Elliot start shouting. And I burst into this uh, hospital room, found Elliot on a, a really old-school leather bed. Uh, with, there was three of them. I could only describe it as it looked like he was having a heart attack. They were all frantically. One of them had ripped a bandage off his leg and then had a pair of scissors off the side and was just popping his blisters, Ooh. which the paramedic said, just don't even consider doing that. And, you know, they just picked some dirty scissors up off the side. And, you know, uh, there was another one while he was wriggling around trying to cut another bandage off the other leg and then someone else trying to pull his shorts off. And, uh, yeah, it was just we walked in. I was like, Stavio, just stop. Thank you, but we're going to have to do this ourselves um, so it was at that point we went right let's just go back to the hotel room let's get as much kind of bandages and see if we can get some iodine and stuff and just try and clean it off um, so we spent it was like something from a Jason Bourne film <laughs> we spent the night in the hotel room uh, we took all the old bandages off cleaned it all with some alcohol wipes. I, they each had a bottle of vodka for the pain because that was all we had. <laughs> most painkillers like codeine and things like that are all illegal in these countries. Mm-hmm. So that was all we had. Um, and some paracetamol we didn't do much. Um, cleaned it all, soaked a load of gauze that we had in iodine uh, and then wrapped it all back up. And then thankfully managed to find a private hospital in the capital and then flew them there the next day. And then they flew back to Withenshaw Burns Unit in Manchester. Uh, and I sorted getting rid of the car. Yeah. Wow, so that was the end of it. So they got, fl- they got flown back to yeah. Manchester. And are they fit and well now, are they? Yeah, so they're both, they're both back home now. I think Elliot was in hospital for um, just under a week. Wow. Yeah, they called it off, bathing all in various 
appointments and things. Um, and then, yeah, just just had to be monitored for a bit. And just keep changing his dressings. And Seb had quite bad burns on his face that had to, you know, just be cleaned. And he he got out quite fast. But they, uh, they were laughing at me for the whole trip because I'm very, very pale for having to wear Factor 50 sun cream. Because, obviously, the trip was quite gradual. They just didn't put any cream on and just got browner and browner as it went on. Uh, and they have, because they've got all this new skin that's come through, they've got to wear uh, sun cream for the next two years. Otherwise, permanent tans, and uh, it's really bad for the skin, apparently. So did uh, were kind you of flipped on its head? Yeah, were you left out there then? Were you were you left out there with the car? Were you? Yeah, so I stayed. Um, I think about two more days, because um, like we knew at that point, I wasn't going to go on in the car on my own because mm-hmm. that'd be too dangerous. So we first of all tried to work out how to get rid of the car, which was impossible speaking to anyone there so we ended up ringing the embassy the Uzbek embassy in London mm-hmm. and that was where we got the most joy they basically just said lock it up at the side of the road record where you lock it up and then send us the location and someone will come along and pick it up which I'm highly skeptical anyone's been and done it but we did what we were told so. um, yeah and then I was planning to fly ahead and jump in with a new team somewhere along the line um, it was over a thousand pounds to get a flight to uh, Mongolia, so we kind of I had about a week and a half left, just over a week. So I decided for a thousand pounds, yeah, it's kind of it seems like a natural end. <laughs> oh, so so how how short were you of the actual finish line? Then how many how many days were you would you been able to uh, continue on to finish? Probably. Another week and a half, two weeks. Right, it right. would have been a push for me to have made it. Um, so I was 50-50 on flying ahead at that point anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, we the flight cost from where we were was just too much for me. So I think I think we did. I think we did about two thirds of the distance, right. something like that. Uh, yeah, we make uh, good going. Yeah, yeah. wow, well, so it must be quite bad burns. You know what percentage burns of the yacht on the? Was it legs and face then? Was it or? Yeah, Elliot was legs and arms, right, uh, and a bit on his face, and then Seb was mainly face. Yeah, I can't remember. I think it was twelve percent. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. On Elliot, um, which I think you're not supposed to fly with over ten, but yeah, they, they basically said we're getting on a plane. Going <laughs> it's a hell of a but that's not an end you thought would be happening at the end but all of no, a, yeah, a, we, a gas bottle from somebody's cooker wasn't it so yeah so I think they had dodgy, dodgy gas canisters uh, they bought them in Georgia or somewhere I think. And we, used to, we woke up every morning we're like what on earth is going to happen today happens in between yeah it's unbelievable we got in a lot of strange situations so you use the InReach Mini quite a bit then that we loaned you. That worked quite well. I saw you'd said quite a few messages quite yeah. tracking points, wasn't there? Um, so we kind of started to use it because we were in much of a rush. We kind of just got to the start line and then we started using it from there. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like really, really useful. Amazing how many people would message us when we had the tracking off because we'd, we'd try and stop somewhere at night, turn it off, well, the idea for us was that I'd show people where we were. Like, my mum was a particular fan. She's like, oh, you can zoom in all the way and I can see 
exactly where we are and what the road name's called and da 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 da. She had a panic about when she realised we were at the gates of hell. And then, yeah, because obviously we couldn't speak to them and then we came out and she thought it was some kind of volcano or something. Uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, we, it was amazing how many people actually followed us on the tracker um, and could see exactly where we were. And we tried to keep a, a track of when we get in the car, we turn it on. We had a little pouch in the roof for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we put it up there. <clears throat> and it took us a few days to kind of get to grips with how many, well, how often do the tracking points, if we should do every hour, every three hours, every because I think it was set to 10 minutes or something like that, which was way too much at first because it was just constantly on charge when we're doing days and days of driving. Um, so it took a bit of getting used to, but it was very, very useful. And then, like you say, with the sending the messages and things, that was an absolute lifesaver because they would have been sending the cavalry if we wouldn't have been able to say, look, we're okay. We've just got no way of getting in touch. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll be fine. It was it put us at ease a lot as well. It was amazing. How, like, it was the first thing you checked. As soon as you got out of the car, you're like, oh, yeah, I've got it with me. Mm-hmm. Um, just so you could just, if you were in the middle of the day or something, you could wander around and make sure that you knew exactly where you were and you knew that other people knew where you were. So it was a... Uh, it was very, very useful. Very good. And I know you're raising money for charities. You were raising money for Mind and Ash. I can't. Remember, I can't. I can't even say it from last night. Ash. Ash. And <laughs> which is uh, yeah, help help prevent yeah. deforestation yeah. of the Amazon rainforest, doesn't it? So yeah. How do you? How much um, money did you raise in the end? Just just shy of two thousand pounds. Brilliant. Um, it was quite evenly split. I think it was just a thousand pounds for Mind, and then just shy of. A thousand pounds for a cool earth or the Ashikari project. Uh, so yeah, we were we were quite pleased with that because we were initially we were aiming for a minimum of a thousand. Mm-hmm. Then we thought, oh, let's see if we can get one and a half. Um, then yeah, we finished up with uh, just shy of two. I think, and would have maybe made two and a half. But I mean, with it being cut short, things we kind of lost fundraising time and. Yeah, it was definitely, it picked up as it set off and people started following it. Fantastic. So, all good stuff. Website's still up as well, is it? I think the website's still there, isn't it? And people can still donate, can Yeah, they? yeah, still, still live. So, if people want to make a donation, they can go to the website, which is theaateam.wixsite, so W-I-X-S-I-T-E dot com forward slash the Mongol Rally, so the, then T H E M O N G O L R A W L Y twenty nineteen. So I'll put I'll put that uh, link in the show notes. So if people want to make a donation, I want to see what the guys get up to. You can go to their website. Yeah. Anything else you want to add as before we go, or not? Is there anything that we've missed out on? Because uh, I, I didn't didn't realize when I dialed in this evening what an exciting <laughs> end to the story <laughs> yeah. was going to be. Yeah, yeah, we've we've had a proper adventure. Um, yeah, I mean, off the top of my head, I think we've covered most of it. Um, but yeah, there's lots of weird and wacky things that happened in between. And I mean, we're definitely looking to either do do the same thing again and try and make it to the finish line or do something similar. Um, and yeah, hopefully not get injured next time. It would have brought you guys very close together, that. Something like that. An experience like that would just, like, yeah. you're already good friends anyway. And especially with what happened at the end, that surely has kind of mm-hmm. gelled you for life, really, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, the things that have happened and the things that we've seen and done have definitely brought us closer together, 100%. Um, 
I mean, just the thing that stood out for all of us was the people that we met. <laughs> in all these countries, we were worried about going to some of these dictatorships, going to some fairly dodgy places. And the people were just so friendly, even down to the police and the army. And in some of these countries, you're supposed to be really wary of them. And everyone was just so friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that was the one takeaway that we'd have, really. It's just everywhere you went, you'd have a cup of tea in your hand. Uh, to be giving you food and water and just all sorts. Um, yeah, everyone wanted to help. Isn't that just life, though? We're getting too philosophical. Do you know what? Life is portrayed as all these people out there, all the horrible people, but it's actually it's, it's the dictators above and these. But actually, most people are just nice people, aren't they? Yeah, you know, they were really, really friendly, really helpful, really nice. They just, yeah, stuck in a system, I suppose. Yeah, that's brilliant. Fantastic. So it's good news. I got the inReach back. Thank you very much for posting it back. It's back here and it's being used. Yeah, no so yeah, great. And glad we have some help. So yeah, well done. Compass on uh, my regards to the two other guys as well. Because um, <laughs> thank them for the big logo on the uh, side of the car. It's very much appreciated. I'll yeah, no problem. something that would be really good. So if you want to find out more about the Garmin inReach devices, please go to our website, which is gpstraining.co.uk. Click on GPS Store on the top menu. Then on the left-hand side, you will see Garmin inReach satellite communication. Just one final thing, Alex, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. And, uh, yeah, if you do any other adventures in the future, please remember us and uh, we can help you out in some way. Definitely will. Thank you very much for helping us out. No problem. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. Cheers. The next thing on this month's GPS Training Podcast is a chat with Ian about some of the different people we've worked with over the past year. Some people have used their GPSs for a slightly different experience. So welcome back, Ian, to this month's GPS Training Podcast. Thank you very much, John. So this was your idea. So well done, Ian. This is a nice it little was. idea of yeah. strange and interesting people <laughs> you've met uh, on your courses and people you've worked with. Um, so I hope you keep, are you keeping well? Had a good month? Yes, not bad, thank you. Um, just uh, actually, I've had a month off courses, which has rather been rather good. But, I'm, uh, I'm just about to go into my third weekend on the trot of courses. So, uh, uh, and for the first time ever, I got absolutely soaked on Sunday. Uh, Ian, you've, you've been wet a lot this year, and I've, I've been, been missed Mr. Yes. Smug, dry as could be. Yes. And then on Sunday, the heavens opened. I was in the Peak District, and I got absolutely absolutely soaked it <laughs> so. i think john that um yeah you can expect it at this time of the year but not at the end of july when uh, we got very wet <laughs> so people's this weekend so fingers crossed the sun shines on us all at people's um if not i'll be crying again so. yeah. <laughs> i'll be watching the weather forecast <laughs> brilliant so so interesting people we've met and or worked with uh, gps training in relation to using the gps is slightly different so the first one you've got ian is whom and what is he or she doing um, right. So the first, uh, first person who I like, met this year, John, was a gentleman called Michael Etoff, and he basically took part in the Beijing to Paris rally, uh, motor rally, back in um, June and July this year. Um, Michael approached you for a bit of training on his 276, uh, Garmin 276 unit, and uh, 
said, right, you put me in touch with Michael. And we spent a very jolly day training um, down in the New Forest, of all places. Um, the, the 276 is a big old beast. The GPS map 276CX is, yes. is the correct title. It's a big yeah. old beast, um, which is a very much a multi-activity, isn't it? So a lot of yes. uh, off-road yeah. ride, off-roaders and roaders in this case, and also people who want a very big screen on outdoor GPS units. Yes, yeah. So, um, yes. Yeah, so, so rather than it be a walk around the New Forest, I designed a little um, navigation exercise. Uh, come late morning that took us all the way around the new forest sort of like over lunch and into the afternoon it yeah it worked it worked very well and and the whole point of this was, was that the um uh, the rally that he was taking part in um it was sort of like a safety requirement that all uh, users all all drivers and uh, crew uh had all of these gps's with them and uh i think that not everyone was going to have been prepared as Michael was um, for the uh, rally in the use of it, and uh, yeah, so it was, a, it was a classic. It was a classic car he's, he's driving, was it Ian? It was it, the um, actual rally um, was for um, class. I think it was before 1975, right? Um, and it went started off in China, in Beijing, uh, went through Mongolia. Uh, then it went into Russia, Kazakhstan, I think back into Russia, and then into uh, Scandinavian countries, and then finally uh, down to, to Paris. Brilliant. So yeah, a bit of a bit, bit of a journey. And you got open source mapping from? Is that right? Is that you got some open source mapping and got that onto his unit for him? That's it. Yes, yes. So we, um, I think, with, with the two seven six, um, all the European mapping comes pre-installed. So. Um, he was all right the moment he like, got into the European countries, uh, but uh, not so for Russia, Kazakhstan, Mongolia and China. But after a bit of hunting on the internet, we found some and uh, he went away with a little map card with uh, open, open street mapping. Fantastic. Really good. So yeah. that's a little bit different. So a bigger unit and a bit more road, well, it's road navigating that he was wanting to do. And we, we put him, we got going the mapping to, to match where he was going to go. Yeah. The next one that we've kind of got on the list is, is, is Zoe, wasn't it? Zoe was, did she come on one of your courses, Ian? Or, yeah, was she? It was three years ago. Right. Um, Zoe was uh, running, Zoe Salt, she, she's an ultramarathon runner. Mm -hmm. And Zoe was running uh, in a race across the Pyrenees uh, from east to west. And so she came on a, I did a day's one-to-one -one with her, Zoe on the South Downs. Um, and literally out of the blue, uh, the beginning of September, I had an, e an urgent email from Zoe saying, I need some help, please. Um, and she was running in a race in the Italian Alps. And she was basically, she'd been given the um, GPX file, route file, um, for the race. And she, I mean, basically, the, the course is marked. But I think that, again, from a safety factor, and apparently, uh, some of the Italian cows take um, take a liking to the markers of the race. So right. Right. <laughs> She was a little concerned that, she, you know, she could uh, lose some markers along the way. Um, so, um, yes, literally the day before Zoe started her, her race, um, she contacted me just to be asked for some help to get the route downloaded into her GPS. She had a, she's got an Oregon 650 and um, 
it, it came with about, I think, I don't know, 7,000 waypoints or something oh, like that. No, so, right. yes. <laughs> so the the good old, it's the good old, um, you know, how do you split a GPX file down into less than 250 waypoints? So, so we did that. I did that over the course of an early evening on the night before the race and got it back to her. And um, oh, I was very impressive. She, um, she beat the uh, British... Uh, women's record by about 10 hours or something fantastic fantastic yeah yeah i mean i think by the sense that in the end she didn't need to use the oregon yeah but she knew that she had it with her and was able to um you know would have been able to have used it if if need be so mm-hmm. i'm racking so my right. brain said just when you talk about that that route I, I was on the course the weekend um in the peak districts as i said earlier on and and i spent about an hour now on download gpx files splitting them and this kind of thing and i always say to people where are you going for a walk this year or what plans are you going to do and I can't remember which trail it was. I'm there racking my brain. There was one I downloaded from the National Trail website, which had 16,500 waypoints in the route. It did. I, 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 <laughs> I think I can tell you that one, John. I think it's uh, it's the one, in, there's one in Wales. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's the, um, oh, it's, I think it's it's not the, um, it's one of the Pilgrim's Ways or, or Gwindir's Way or some, something like that. Because, um, I, I had a gentleman contact me about it, saying that he downloaded in the last month. He'd actually downloaded this route, uh-huh. and it had totally frozen his, like in one lung, lung yeah. onto his GPS, and it to- totally froze it. Yeah. And I said to him, "No, no, no, you've got to cut it down." It's, it's I crazy. Can't believe it. I, I, I say yeah. normally I bring it down. We have a bit of a chuckle. Oh, it's a route, right? What's the maximum number of waypoints we can have, yeah. and I can work through it. And this one I brought up sixteen and a half thousand. I went, Oh my word! I, I always pick it like the Havens Wall is a bad example of the National Trail website, but to find one with sixteen and a half thousand, I thought this is just unbelievable, really. Yeah, so uh, yeah. again, that was it's interesting when we get out and about what we find. So, anyway, back uh-huh. onto what we're supposed to be discussing, which is uh, some of the strange and uh, interesting people we've, uh, we've 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 been working with over the last few years. The one that we've had and I know you did a bit of support on this Ian and that's why um, this all came to the fore was we had the BBC um, wanting some GPS units for their dynasty series which is a wildlife series that they're currently filming um it's in, they're doing it in africa so we got some open source mapping from africa and they were plotting uh, where some i'm not going to go too much into it because i don't want to ruin it i must be, be told off from the bbc they're tracking some wild animals and they wanted to mark the waypoints of where they are and various things like this and um yeah they they I, we got one of their units back because they had a few problems with it um may i say it was user error rather than unit error uh, at this point of time and and it's fascinating to see exactly how they were using the first time they'd kind of plugged it into a, a computer they'd been out in the field a number of months and used it to mark where where they'd seen various animals where they had seen them again and this kind of thing did you or you never actually got to see the units Ian did you no um, I didn't no, it was quite fascinating no. downloading them and seeing how they changed the icons of the waypoints according to the various animals and where they had been on particular days oh, so fantastic. it was a good way yeah. to see it yeah. so just to throw out three interesting there so it was Michael who did the Beijing to Paris rally Zoe who was the ultra runner which Ian helped with in the South Downs a little bit about the BBC. Uh, so they bought, I think it was four sixty-six S's. I think they bought off us a little bit right. earlier on this year. If you uh-huh. think there's anything of interest that you, we can help you with at GPS training, you know, training on a specific unit or something a little bit different, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us here at GPS Training.
next thing on this month's GPS Training Podcast is Ian's FAQs. We've got a big one here, Ian, haven't we? We've got a mm-hmm. Garmin sat map, a base camp, and then we're going to do a, mm-hmm. a, a, a watch or a wearable one at the end. So it's going to yes. be quite a good one. So Ian's back with his FAQs, which are questions that he's been asked on his various courses around the country. So the first one in the Garmin GPS FAQs is how do I customize the data fields on my GPS? And that is a very simple one. Um, actually, this I think it's one of the shortest FAQ out of the ones we're doing t- t- today, John, in, in some ways. Um, yeah, I mean, basically any of the screens where you have a, um, you know, where you can have data field showing, um, if it's a, a touch screen, all you do is you just need to bring up the box from the bottom of the screen, horizontal bars, and you can either uh, set up the data fields in the first place to show um, as a different dashboard. Mm-hmm. Um, and then within the dashboard, so you can either have just little data fields or the, as every unit comes with, I think the pretty sunset and sunrise that takes up half the yeah. available space on the screen. Um, so and once you've got one of these dashboards showing, um, then from there, uh, you've got the option of uh, changing, sort of like going into the um, data fields. And you do it one of two ways, depending on what sort of GPS you've got. If you've got the button GPS, uh, the 66, 64, 62, um, then basically it's the menu button, and then an, an option, a sub-option comes up um, uh, that says change data fields. And then from there in, you can go in and highlight a box you want to change. and customize it mm-hmm. um and there's a massive amount to choose from it's absolutely oh, phenomenal the amount you can choose i know from. So it's a quite 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 overwhelming i think you know you just want to just to generally just a, a few simple ones i think the ones that yeah, be most useful if you're walking or cycling and these data fields you can also change for your accessories can't you so if you've got a temp sensor people say well how do i get my temp sensor data actually you change one of those data fields to pick up the temperature yeah. from your temp sensor or heart rate mm-hmm. monitor if you've got a heart rate monitor or a cadence sensor all these um these these technologies that are, are wireless and work alongside your gps if you need to see the data you just change one of those data fields don't you in that trip computer page and and that's how you'll get that information isn't it Absolutely. And, you know, just that's sort of like we mentioned the, the 60 series GPSs and for the touchscreens, again, it's very similar, but quicker, um, like all these little things are, because um, all you what have to do is you literally have to touch the, the data field box mm-hmm. and the drop down list comes up straight away of all the information that you can change that box to. Um, one nice little feature um with the touch screens is that once you've changed the, the data fields to how you want them is that you can um again through the sub menu uh um option is is that you can lock the, the the data field so they don't change um if you're holding the gps or whatever and yeah. and conversely when you're struggling to think i cannot change my data fields yeah. then always guaranteed it's because you've forgotten that they're locked and so the um, pop down uh, menu again pop up menu again gives you the option to unlock the data yeah. field. And it's really good practice to keep locking those data fields when you change yeah. them and unlock them because otherwise, as you rightly say, put in your pocket, accidentally pressurise on them, it's going to come back and be all changed there. So really good top tip there. Our Garmin use about to change your data fields on your on your trip computer page, both on the buttoned and the touchscreen GPS units. 
Next top tip is for SatMap users. So this is just for SatMap Active 20 users, Ian, isn't it? I think how to update my GPS software. That's it. Um, I've been asked quite a few times this month. There's been, um, and I'm not sure even if, if you're aware, John, but we raised um, a query with SatMap a good fortnight ago now because some tracks weren't recording on the Active 20. Um, and there's been a, there was a beta update uh, back on about three days ago. Okay. Um, so um, one of the questions I was asked by a gentleman was, okay, great, they've done a beta update, how do I change it? Right. And the answer is, uh, and I know that we've covered this in previous podcasts, that you can either use SatSync, uh, which is the program, uh, computer pro little computer program for Windows or for Mac, um, or alternatively, if you've got an Active 20, then uh, mm -hmm. you can do it um, directly from the unit, uh, provided that you're actually logged on to a Wi-Fi network at, at the time. And when we're updating SatMaps, there's two things, and there's this platform upgrade, and then the uh, is it, is it platform, the and then the soft software as well, isn't That's there? That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so uh, does the platform update very often or not, Ian? Is it? No, I mean the last platform update date I think was back in about September 2018 I think right. so that stayed um, very um, you know the last year really being constant um, but it, the GPS software is changing all the time SatMap are still finding little bugs little fi doing little fixes or they're making the operation of the unit um, easier smoother for the for the owner of the GPS so um, what they do is again as we've discussed in earlier on in the earlier podcast they put it out as a beta update first so we try it we test it members of the public feedback any issues and eventually when they know that it's a stable bit of software then they will release it as like an official version of the um gps unit. and the sat map beta versions are usually quite good aren't they i know you yeah. on course encourage yeah. people to go to the beta version so you're all looking off the same uh, hymn sheet as such isn't it yes yeah i say because otherwise it's it's very difficult to run a course because sometimes SatMap on their updates change words and when i'm using one word someone's looking at something totally different so um okay. i say and generally apart from the odd you know few little problems um the beta updates are are very good very stable and you know give sometimes gives the user an extra feature or two Fantastic. on the gps so then SatMap updating your gps software so i said i originally said it's just for 20 but actually 10s and 12s will use SatSync, won't the to update that's that. it, yeah and then yeah. you can use SatSync for your 20 but if you want to you can use the wi-fi uh feature you just, you just go to manage upgrades and there's options for your software upgrades and and your platform upgrades and as ian said don't be scared of going to that beta version because they usually are tested if you have a problem just contact ian directly <laughs> i'm <just> joking sorry <laughs> 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 okay, Basecamp. Um, right. How do I merge routes? So, Basecamp, Windows and Mac, or oh, Windows and Mac. So, Windows, uh, yeah. first of all, Ian, for Basecamp. Basecamp, as we all know, is a base. It's a route planning software by Garmin. And uh, how do you merge or join two routes that you've uh, got on your route planning software? Ah, it's very simple. And basically, all you need to do, John, is is that for Windows, uh, you select the routes down on the left-hand properties box on the, so the left-hand side of the uh, screen. And um, once you've selected them, 
Um, so you say have a couple of roots. They'll go into sort of white, be highlighted in a pale blue colour. And then all you need to do with your mouse uh, is you right click uh, the within the highlighted roots and an option says it comes up saying join roots. So you then uh, and then another window comes up and if they're the roots that you want to join together, uh, you click OK and you've got two roots that have been joined into one. Fantastic. So you just highlight both roots, right click and then join roots and then it actually brings them up in a list as you rightly say, doesn't it? And you just join yeah, those together it. nice and simple. Yeah. Yeah. Mac uses slightly different really for the Mac users, isn't it? Yeah, slightly different, slightly, well, I suppose slightly quicker in one way is, is that um, when, again, if we're just talking about two roots, uh, you open up the, the first route, so you double click on first route, little box come appears. And then all you do is that for your second route, you just have to drag and drop it into that box and you either drop, depending whether you want it at the beginning, before the first route or the second route, um, or at the end, it's just a matter of dragging and dropping to where you want it to, to join to what part of the first route. So it's very simple. Just drag it and drop it into there. Yeah. It's quite interesting because that route dialogue box there that you're talking about, when you double click on it, open, you do quite a bit of that editing there because you can delete your waypoints and things quite you on the Mac. That's yeah. more the way yeah. uh, editing, which is, is, it's, it's nice how it all in that kind of one place, isn't it? Or on your yes. PC, teach you that top menu. So yeah. on the yeah. Mac users, double click on your route, first route, open up your route dialog box, and you just drag from the left-hand side um, your other route, either, as Ian says, either the top or the bottom, and it automatically adds it on there. So then, our wearables uh, yes. top tip says, how do I set up alerts for different activities on my Instinct or Phoenix Watch, e.g. distance intervals? So this is for people with their watches, Instincts or Phoenixes, um, Phoenix 5, Phoenix 6, or even maybe before that. So how do we do that, Ian, so we can set up our distance intervals, for example? Well, um, in fact, I think it's a nice little feature, this. Um, so if you want, rather than you forever checking to see how far you've gone, you've walked or cycled or whatever, um, you can specify the intervals at which your uh, wearable alerts you for the next kilometre you've walked or whatever distance you, you, you choose. Um, so how do you do it? You firstly, to get into the settings, um, you need to get into the settings menu first. So you press and hold the middle button on the left-hand side of the watch and uh, don't scroll down to the settings. Um, then you highlight uh, the activities and the apps. And once you're in there, uh, find the activity or the app that you want to set this interval for, whether it's hike or navigate or track me or whatever it is. Um, and once you've found that, uh, you go into the settings of that activity. And once you're in that activity, the settings, um, the activity settings, uh, you then highlight alerts and you, well, you select alerts um, and then you can either um, add a new alert and there are a whole pile of uh, preset alerts um, or uh, customer alerts. And within one of these um, options, there is one for, for distance. And when you're in the distance, uh, you can then select how frequently your wearable alerts you for the distance that you've actually walked or mm -hmm. cycled. So, I mean, it is, it's a very well hidden uh, sort of kind of a setting, I think. You know, it's a bit of a, 
it's a bit of a shopping menu to get into it. Um, yeah, I've just actually done it there. While you were talking, I just got my watch and did it. I set it up for one mile interval, so I've set mine up. As a, if people want to see how to do that, if you go to um, go to our website where you can read the podcast notes, and I'll actually put because Ian has actually written down how you find that. If you struggle to find it, just uh, have a look there, and uh, and Ian's actually wrote a, a bit of a that example of how we get to those settings. So we press and hold the middle left button, you get to settings, choose activities and apps, select the activity you wish to set from there. So um, that could be hiking or you're cycling or whatever. Go to activity settings, then alerts. Then you can add a new one, or as you rightly say, there's loads of different ones, custom ones there. One being distance, status, on, off, and frequency, and you can set that distance in there. And then your GPS watch will notify you every mile or every kilometer or every five, yeah. however you want to do it. That's pretty and, good. And when it notifies, it tells you how quickly you did that last mile in, doesn't it? I think Ian does it. Or yeah, it 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 also um it it. it it also sort of like almost counts you you down to the sort of like right. you know, as you're coming up to it, it it counts you down for the um for the you know next kilometer or mile and and it is just very good i think it, you know because i think when you're out walking and you sort of like it just saves you forever check your how much for you know how far have i walked it's it's just one of those nice little features on the on the watch i think Fantastic. Yeah. Don't forget, we have lots of top tips and solutions to all your questions in the GPS Training online resource. Just go to gpstraining.co.uk, click on online resource in the top menu bar, and then log in. Select your unit, and you'll see the top tips for that unit down on the bottom of the menu units. So thank you, Ian, for joining me again this month on your, top, uh, on your FAQs. <laughs> Thanks very much, John. Good to talk to you. And finally, many thanks for listening to this month's GPS training podcast. If there's anything you would like to cover in the future, please do get in touch. Please also give us a call, especially if you're thinking about buying an outdoor GPS unit. Please do take a look at both our physical GPS training courses and also our webinars. We've now actually got all our GPS training courses on for 2020. So just have a look at our website, go to gpstraining.co.uk and click on GPS training courses. Please do tell your friends about the GPS Training Podcast and encourage them to subscribe on whichever platform app they are using. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating in iTunes or for the Android users for Overcast Plays. It is very much appreciated. If you can also leave us a snazzy review on whatever platform you're listening to us on, that would also be appreciated. Many thanks for Alex and Ian for joining me on this month's GPS Training Podcast. And I very, I very much hope you can get out and get plenty of miles under your belt this month.